Season 6, Episode 9 of The People's Project. I said last week that I have to up my game because this week I'm joined by two politicians. Well, one is a politician, uh, someone that I think is one of the best politicians. I said this publicly. I don't know if you saw Thank the you. story. I said, I think this is one of the best politicians in Victoria. Oh, you're an Did amazing you judge of character. Did you see that story? <laughs> I, I didn't, didn't see I it, didn't no. get a like or anything, but oh, it, really? it expires oh, wow. after 24 hours. Uh, this is Ryan Smith, member for Warrandite where I'm sad to say I no longer live. What? That's God's country. It is disappointing that you've left. It is. But why I say you're a good politician is because you're always out there talking about local issues. Fix this roundabout, fix this tree. And often I say to you, stop worrying about the tree and start trying to do bigger issues. And you're like, no. Nope, you've got to do both. You've got to do both in this game. I bring that up because we also have on the panel today, Ingrid Maynard, the leader of the Victorians party, also a party interested in the local issues rather than the big, I don't know what the word is, but the big highfalutin things that we seem to hear from our politicians. Yeah. Some of the distractions perhaps, distractions. the things that really matter to people, yep. Ingrid, uh, why are you, I mean, I don't want to go into an interview format, but can you just maybe introduce yourself to the people who, they've never seen you before, why are you running for a new party, briefly? Oh, briefly, in, yeah. ten, in 10 words or less. Yes. Um, yeah, so I'm Ingrid Maynard and mm. I'm the leader of the Victorians party. And why I'm doing this and why we're doing this is because we really care about the state of Victoria and we'd like to change the way that politics is done in this state. We'd like to see more non-career politicians, mm. um, you know, current, uh, present company accepted, but um, we'd like to see more non-career politicians enter politics and have a say because they understand their communities, they are one of them, and they're going to be there when they form policy ideas to, to see them through and to understand the impact on their local communities. Okay, well these are the type of guests that are gonna be running through the news with us today. I think you can see quite rational and on the ground grassroots type people, which is a pleasure to join them today. Today we've got four big things to talk about, but before we do that, I must thank the people who have made this place possible. We only exist because of our private community at discernible.locals.com. And in fact, there's a number of people who have purchased all this lovely equipment you see for us now and they're on this lovely stainless steel plaque. So I tell you what, if I was in Melbourne and I wanted to get a plumber, for example, I'd be going to CGC Plumbing Services because they're on the plaque. That's how you measure your plumbers, whether they're on the plaque or not. Is your plumber on the plaque? All right, let's get started. Whether it's by bike, scooter, or car, Food delivery and rideshare services have become a part of everyday life. The Australian community has come to really value the convenience. But there is no federal law regulating their income or safety. No one, when they're getting in an Uber, no one, when they're answering that knock at the door to receive their food, expects that those workers are literally under deadly pressures. In 2020, at the peak of the pandemic, five food delivery drivers died on the road. Three of those were with Uber. Now an agreement made with the Transport Workers Union and the ride-sharing giant could reshape legislation across the country to better protect gig economy workers. We have been able to propose changes that retain the flexibility whilst overlaying the benefits and protections that more traditionally would be involved in an employee-like contract. 
Under the arrangement, there would be a minimum earning safety net, a mechanism to resolve disputes, and an independent body to represent workers. DoorDash has also signed a similar agreement with the union, while Menulog is pursuing a new modern award. Quite often have to work a 60 or 70 hour week to be able to afford to take time off. Right now, every time a worker hops into a car or goes to deliver food, they have no right to a minimum wage, workers' compensation, unfair dismissal protection or employer superannuation. That's because they're considered an individual contractor, but the new federal government will look to change that and set minimum standards for gig economy workers. I have, in fact, driven as an Uber driver on that very street, so in the clip, Gadigal Avenue in, uh, I think it's Zetland in Sydney. Uh, so I think it is very real, um, everyone here, that these uh, gig economy workers, of whom I've been one at certain times, have some bad conditions, shall we say, and don't enjoy the same protections that they probably should because, we, honestly, we were acting as an employee, basically, not as an independent contractor. But what do you make of, um, of this push for, I mean, I should ask you, Ingrid. Okay. Because because we said you're the leader of the Victorians Party, but you also have a strong history in corporate. I sure do. Well, mm. having my own businesses, absolutely, and using mm. independent contractors. Mm. Yep. So what are your thoughts on this push to make them more employee-like? Yeah, gee, there's a fine line, isn't there? Mm. I mean, on one hand, it's fantastic to see people like this protected mm. um, and, and looked after in the manner to which that they should be, you know, in a common sense way, I think. That's what I like about this. What concerns me, though, is the extension out. So for a lot of small businesses, they use and rely on mm -hmm. independent contractors. Mm -hmm. And they, they do that because it works for both parties. Mm. I think as soon as you step into that, and there's already legislation mm. that protects those people right. from overusing them or having quasi-employees. Yes. Anyway, yeah. so the thing that concerns me here is, number one, a union getting involved. You don't like unions? Well, it's not that I don't like the unions. I think the unions have grown into an entity and a force unto themselves and um, seem to be more about their own power and more own relevance than really representing those people that have joined them for those protections. Um, but, but what I would say here is that, you know, it could, if it, if it extends out to all businesses using independent contractors, then that's a disincentive for a lot of people to go into their own businesses. And then you miss all of the other benefits that come with that. You know, there's a lot of women that opt to work for themselves because it gives them greater flexibility around childcare and child rearing. Oh, and also, yes. you know, you think about all of the all of the people that come to this wonderful country who start their own businesses, mm. you know, and that's what small business is made up of, predominantly females and, and people who are trying to, you know, give their, their families a better life. That, that's the bit that concerns me. Okay, well, that, that's the same line that uh, this, this post by Ken Phillips from Self-Employed Australia, who's been on this panel before, he talks about uh, exactly this uh, flexibility that seems to be something that the federal Labor government has been coming for for a long time now because of unfairness that we've talked about. But they're going yeah. to squash, for example, they're going to um, force small businesses like me and, and, and yours and others. I have one full-time staff and then the rest of my staff are contractors. Yeah. If I'm forced to treat them with the same as my full-timer, I'm out, I'm out. I can't. Mm. I don't have money. Yeah, and I think I agree with Ingrid. There seems to be 
Although my first reaction is, yes, people do need protections around safety issues and things of that nature, I get very cynical when I see a, a transport workers union head oh. getting up and saying, <laughs> this is a great idea, thinking yeah. more members for me, more dues for me, more mm. power for me. Right. So I think if it was, I would be more open to the whole idea if it was being championed by maybe the business themselves, which I know the Uber guy was there. Um, or, but he's, you know, he's not a small business. He's, no, he's not a small business. So it, it's, I mean, my experience with Labor governments and the Labor Party generally is they don't like um, private contractors. They don't like people that work for themselves. They don't like non-unionised workforce. Why? Well, they, it, it's not controllable. It, it's when you've got all people doing disparate things it's not a, an environment that they can control. And I've seen at the mm. state level, particularly, you know, our Premier has very clearly um, in the last couple of years, you know, made sure that small business in particular, but they're, they're the ones who get locked down, they get all the restrictions. Yes. The unionised workforce, they particularly don't. on government projects, were allowed to operate, That's right. uh, you know, largely in the manner that they always had. So those unionised workforces will always be protected by Labor. And mm. when they, the uh, as the clip said, you know, the new... Labor federal government coming in are now looking to, you know, for your own good, mm. put some protections in for you. Mm. Um, I would be very surprised if that didn't progress to joining a union. Yeah, mm. I totally agree with that. And I'd just like to say that that word protection, <coughs> you know, at, at when you first hear it, yeah. I so agree with you, Ryan, um, that, you know, you, you kind of go, yes, we want to protect people. Mm. I think that that you know, as human beings who are caring people, you, you do, you want to protect people, mm. particularly those who are vulnerable to exploitation, number one. But I think that word protection has almost been code over the last two years and for your own good, yeah. you know, um, there's been a, a continuous erosion of people's fundamental freedoms and the ability for them to create income for themselves without being reliant on either unions, government or big business. Okay, so when I, when when Ken and, and myself and people, self-employed people like myself, feel like the Labor governments, federal and state, are, don't like us and they prefer us to be, yep. you know, unionised or towards that, we're not just imagining that there is an actual real incentive for them to get us into that. That that of... is a an overarching ideology, you know, okay. it really is. And I, I people often say to me. Um, you know, the Premier Daniel Andrews is beholden to the unions. And I say he's not beholden to the unions at all. He is one of them. Uh. You know, he's not beholden to a separate group. He's wow. one of them. And, and you know, it's been said on in, in many uh, mediums that Albanese is very similar in ideology yes. and yes. philosophy to Daniel Andrews. So I'm not surprised wow. this is where they want to go. They, they are of the union. Um, they're not working for the union. They're of the union and they want to help the union grow membership, increase their power base as much as they possibly can. That is a an absolute uh, outcome that they're looking for. Nightmare. So look, then I guess the question becomes for all of us who are self-employed, do we continue to fight for uh, being self-employed and the freedoms we have? Or should we just sign up? No. Let's just sign up to the to the racket. It's looking pretty sweet. I can keep working if I'm in a union construction site. So mm. why don't I just become a builder on a union site? All right, everyone, let's go locally to Victoria in crisis yet again. I mean, every week we say this, Victoria in crisis, enough. <laughs> have in Victoria what's called the State Health Emergency Response Plan and under that there are escalation strategies like Code Orange 
and Code Red. So what they allow Ambulance Victoria to do is to escalate, and that might mean that there are different um, procedures and operations that are put into place that are not normally done in normal business. Um, or it might be that there's a difference in dispatch. So rather than sending two ambulances to one case, they might just send one if they don't have enough resources. Code Red is meant to be for disaster type protocols like bushfires, thunderstorm, asthma, um, mass casualty events, but unfortunately with the workload, uh, we actually see them use it to try to help uh, cope with the, um, the workload challenges that are out there. Uh, and it can mean that they direct in the event of something like thunderstorm asthma under a code red, they may actually say to people, um, you are better off to try to make your own way safely to hospital rather than wait for an ambulance because it's so busy. Welcome to Victoria where code reds are oh, every couple of weeks now, which literally means there are no ambulances available is how I understand it in uh, Melbourne during That's code right. red. That's right. And we raise issues about people who have been left stranded, either waiting for a phone call to be put through mm. or for an ambulance to come. We raise these in Parliament. Um, the Premier will get up, the Health Minister will get up and say, you know, unprecedented times. I tell you what, if it's that unprecedented time, why is it happening every week? It was happening before COVID too. It was, absolutely. That's right. And I, I look at that clip and, and we were just talking about unions. You know, Danny Hill has been good in coming out and talking about the problem, but he never attributes it to the government. I remember you, you, people will remember back in uh, 2014 when the coalition government was in, there were signs all over the, the ambulances and yeah. things were yeah. nowhere near as bad yeah. as they are Who's now. Who's Danny Hill? Danny Hill's the, um, the union secretary who was just on the clip. Yep, for, for the union for the, of... Uh, ambulance Ambulance union, yep. there you go, everyone. Danny Hill. So he's been good coming out, but he just won't He, won't, he, he certainly won't well, get his union members to speak and demonstrate in the manner that they did. Fire union um, might this year. Well, who knows how that'll <laughs> work, work out. But, but yeah. you're right, we are in a crisis, um, and it's one that the government has let slide for a long time. Again, we've raised issues... Um, the government was presented a report back in 2018, did nothing with it. I mean, these are people's lives we're playing with here. These, this is a situation, I mean, for, for those who have children, you know, you tell your child as soon as they're old enough to remember, if, if mum or dad, something happens, just dial triple O and someone will answer. Someone will answer. Can you imagine now, you know, parent on the floor, little kid just ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing and no answer, how completely and utterly devastating it is. And flip the coin, if your child, as we've seen so many times on the media recently, mm -hmm. you know, my, my kid can't breathe. It's like, yeah. answer the phone. Mm -hmm. What a nightmare. We are brought up to believe with all our hearts that Triple O will get us help. Yeah. And when help doesn't come, yeah. what do you do? Yeah. Well, this is something I've had, uh, you know, I had a former paramedic on the panel uh, in the other room. <clears throat> I've had Esther employees in here who answer the triple zero calls. Yeah. And some of them are saying, listen, we'll do our best, but to be really honest, be ready mm. if your husband has a heart attack, whatever, to get in the car. That's, that's a real live precaution you have to take. You have to be ready yeah. to run your kid to the hospital. Well, your kids, that, that's fine in some ways. If I collapse, I can tell you my wife's not going to be able to get me into the car. Yeah. If I can't move, yeah. how can you move yep. a dead weight yep. if that's the situation? And in some cases, in. it's too dangerous, yeah. isn't it? Well, to, yeah, to that's right. Someone. If you're falling off a ladder, you're not yeah. moving someone. That's right. You know, mm. I think you know it would be fantastic for for Mr. Hill to ask some questions or to to raise the point. You know, why are we, you know, so understaffed? Why is you know the the health sector in crisis? Mm. And I would say that, you know, if you look to where government spending goes, it goes straight
straight into the bureaucracy rather than people on the ground. There aren't enough people on the ground in our ambulance services. Why is that? You know, over the last two years, we've had people that haven't been able to work because their choice was to perhaps not be vaccinated, you know, and at a time like this where they're so understaffed, surely mm. that's a call to arms to bring some of those people back into the fold because we need them. And second of all, you know, when we think about, you know, not just the ambulances and the ramping that's gone on and seven code reds, it, it really comes back down to, you know, people, again, more doctors mm. in hospitals and more nurses in hospitals rather than it going into the bureaucracy of the of the health public sector. I did see a interesting stat that uh, our beds per thousand population used to be eight, but now it's four. So in 2000, it was eight. 20 years later, it's four per right. thousand. Right. So that's, that's not good. <laughs> but what you just mentioned is interesting, the idea of um, bureaucracy versus on the ground. Mm. Same thing is happening in VicPol. So we discover that, well, I mean, this is not huge news, but there's about 17,000 police, sworn police members in, in Victoria and only about 6,000-ish are operationals on the streets. And this is something that I've had former chief commissioners of VicPol and former inspectors. I've had a bunch of VicPol in here on this show. And they've said to me that a lot of the police force want to get these nice air-conditioned jobs. They want to get off the road. There's a particular culture in Victoria to get wow. off the road compared to, say, Sydney, New South Wales. So uh, I wanted to read for you a nice comment from a retired chief superintendent, John Bodina, who we've invited to come on. Uh, <clears throat> he says that the current situation in VicPol is a critical service delivery emergency because police stations are closing. You know about this? Yeah, I do. <laughs> police stations are literally closing and leaving us, uh, again, to fend for ourselves. There's 24-hour police stations that are currently closed for at least night time. But wow. there's, yes. I think, uh, 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 if memory serves me, around Laverton, it's closed 24 hours a day. It's supposed to be open 24 hours a day. It's closed 24 hours a day. There are areas that are being left without police presence. And one of the reasons is the government set up you know, your amount of task, for, task forces, task force, yeah. um, where the people who, the, the officers who usually staff stations are at, are in these task force. So oh, yeah. the public order response uh, team or task force sit back and wait for a demonstration in Melbourne. They're not actually used That's right. for regular police work. Yeah. Yeah. You've got a family violence task force. You've got a bikey task, you know, a yeah. ga bikey gang task force. Yeah. Yeah. Those police are not on the beat. They're yes. doing... Yes, they do important work. There's no question about it. And I'm never going to be one to criticise our police force. Mm. I may criticise police command at different times. Mm. Sure. Um, but the police, you know, they, they do what they're told and they get out there and they do some really just fantastic work in so many different ways. Yeah. But they are in task forces rather than going on the beat. And that's one of the reasons why we've got less police on the beat. Ego. Do you remember Shane Patton when he came to power? It was only during the lockdown, just before. It was like 2020 came to power. When he signed his contract, three-year contract, he, um, he said a return, a back to basics policing, more police visible on the beat, meeting the community and so on. I was, a, I was hopeful. The CAA, the Community Advocacy Alliance were hopeful. And even they have now turned and said, unfortunately, Shane Patton has not delivered. He's looking more like the Graham Ashtons and so on. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's right. I, I think that there has been, for all the rhetoric, it's been disappointing. Um, there aren't the police out there that there should be, there aren't the police responding and there aren't the stations open when people need them and, and all of that. 
you know, it is all comes into that crisis that Victoria is facing with regards to emergency yeah. services. Yeah. Well, how about bringing back some of these legends, like this chief, retired chief superintendent who says that he was a former executive officer in VicPol with the responsibility of monitoring police service delivery, what we're talking about. And in his time, it exceeded international benchmarks. Uh, and he marketed these capabilities around the world and P Victoria Police was the shining star in global policing excellence and its leaders from VicPol were being appointed to top positions in other jurisdictions. But in one decade, in 10 years, successive governments here, Labor governments, he says, have imported incompetent and unproven command level leadership yeah. that has crippled Victoria Police, which has now become a lame, the lame duck of the nation. I, I speak to serving officers. I've got friends who are recently retired. Um, I guess one of them said to me recently, if you're not prepared to follow the woke agenda in the police force, you will not get promoted wow. beyond a certain level. There you go. And that's, you know, it's not about catching crooks, which I think most Victorians want. Yep. Um, it's, it's about diversity. Yep. It's about making sure that all the political correctness, I's and dotted and T's are crossed. Mm. And that's what, that's what I'm told anecdotally from serving members and retired members. And it's a real opportunity missed, I think, by Victoria Police because, over the again, over the last two years, their credibility, I think, has been diminished significantly because they've been seen as, you know, the, the attack dogs of yeah. the, the Andrews government. And unfortunately, you know, the best way for there to be trust, you know, from their communities in them and in their ability to protect and serve, which is what they sign up for, um, is to, to be on the ground and, and making those community connections. And you can imagine, you know, oh, that, that just horrifies me, that statistic. Mm. And I, you know, I, I didn't know that about those 24-7 police stations mm. being closed 24-7, you know, in critical areas. And, you know, we're seeing shootings in the street at the moment. By big pole shooting protesters, or you mean, oh. yeah. Yeah, you know. I just and have to I, remind and people that this is the force that did shoot protesters. That's right. And I just think, I just think it's, a, it's a real opportunity missed by Victorian police. I would only add to that, it's command and the government that, that caused that. And I spoke to police during those times and, you know, the rank and file are not permitted to go up in the morning and decide what, they, what orders they'll follow and which ones they aren't and what laws they'll uphold and which ones they aren't. So I would blame... I would never be one to blame the rank and file. Yep. I do think there's Hang a problem on, in command, and I think there's a problem with the government of the day. Yes, yep. you are correct. But if you're standing there with the rubber bullet shotgun and your command is saying, shoot that guy as in the back, sometimes they shot because they were aggressing. I get it. But sometimes I saw when they were running around a corner in the CBD running away, the guy pulls the trigger and shoots the guy in the mm. back. Mm. That's never okay. Mm. And some of the, some of the outcomes of those rubber bullets... I mean, when we hear the term rubber bullets, you know, we, we kind of think, oh, it's kind of harmless. No, but actually, no. you know, I, I saw some, some awful images, yeah. you know, during the course of, you know, subsequent, you know, lockdown after lockdown after lockdown, and finally people had had enough. And, you know, I understand that, you know, as a Victorian, I, I completely understand how frustrated and how, you know, infuriated uh, so many Victorians were. And, and to have that response, that overreach, um, rather than, you know, a, an appetite to actually allow people to, to vent some of that frustration and to feel like they're actually being listened to, um, you know, and yet they got yeah. that <laughs> instead. There was, there was a lot of frustrations boiling over at that point, yeah. I think. Yeah. We did allow some protests, not others. Uh, you are correct, though, they're not non-lethal ammunition. That is not what they're called in the force. It's called less than lethal. Wow. 
Yeah. Okay. So I didn't know that. There That's you go. Yeah. Did not know that. I learned that, learned that from all these um, copies I've been talking to. Anyway, I will put the link in below of an article from the Community Advocacy Alliance, which is a combination of, of a whole bunch of retired uh, Victoria Police members. And they are suggesting one thing we could do is bring back the reservist system. You know, like the Army Reserves. Okay. Where you can call upon people very well established like that retired superintendent. Mm -hmm. Not to come in and be sworn and have a gun and patrol the streets, but to uh, do the paperwork, to sit in stations and provide a mature, experienced influence on all the young staff. And they might just be filling out paperwork on, on some kind of volunteer basis or some kind of a reservist basis being paid for one day a week. But that would be great to change the culture of VicPol. Not going to happen, is it? Shame. Well, it's, isn't it, and again, another missed opportunity, you know, they talk about, you know, unprecedented times. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, whenever I hear that word, I think, you know, as a business person, I think, well, gee, here's an opportunity to, to look at something totally differently. Mm. And, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if Victoria Police said, well, we'll try a different model, mm -hmm. you know, and, and we'll think about ourselves in a different way so that we can be fully resourced and we can still provide all of our serving officers with all of the flexibility and, mm -hmm. you know, sick leave and holiday leave and all of those things that they deserve because they work so hard and we don't want to see them burnt out just like our health workers are, uh, particularly in critical care. So I think, again, you know, unprecedented times call for, you know, innovative solutions. Agreed. Apparently, it's not that unprecedented to bring back some of these old dogs, <laughs> old guard. Mm -hmm. Okay, everyone, what is what, what are we saying at the end of the day? You've got to try and be ready to look after yourself and drive yourself to hospital. Now, what, you've got to try and defend yourself, like don't get into trouble because the police may not be able to come. <sighs> All right, let's talk about what might fix this, the political situation and the rise of the independence. <laughs> Almost seven weeks on from the federal election now and the post-mortem is underway within coalition circles. One suggestion of how to make the party competitive in 2025 has been to adopt gender targets, even if just temporarily, to stem the flow of strong female candidates who are choosing to run as independents against Liberals. Joining me now is one of those MPs who was unseated by a teal independent, Jason Falinski, former Liberal member for McKellar. I'm glad you can laugh about it. You've got to have a sense of humour, I guess. So what went wrong? Oh, we didn't get enough votes. That's what went wrong. It's simple as that. And I think we didn't get enough votes because, to a certain extent, we were a third-term government going for a fourth term and we'd be, we were victim of circumstances. COVID-19 had made people very irritable. Um, we hadn't been able to run a proper government agenda because we'd been busy saving the nation, both on a health and economic front. And, you know, we got to an election and people went... Hey, you know what? Um, it was a bit like a, a long car trip on a holiday. People just wanted to get out of the car and stretch their legs. Brian, this disgusts me. I'm, I, it's a strong word, but this disgusts me, that attitude. I don't know, really know who that is, some federal member who lost his seat. Well, yep. he should, because he just said he was busy, we were busy saving the nation, and, you know, people were angry. It was COVID-19's fault. That's Talk about passing the buck. Yeah, I think there was a lot more to the loss than that, and I think one of the things was, frankly, that, the Prime Minister was unpopular for a range of reasons. I think uh, he was painted, some of it fair, some of it not. Um, but the reality is it's very hard to get, well, it's hard to get a third term in Australian politics at the moment, let alone a fourth. So I think there was that attitude that it was time for a change. I mean, I don't think anyone could say that Albanese had a great campaign period. Fair enough. Um, but I don't think anyone cared. They just wanted to, That's right. they wanted the change. They wanted to get rid of um, the Prime Minister. And uh, that, you know, there was a whole range of reasons why, you know, there was reasons around 
integrity. They wanted the, you know people wanted the uh, independent anti-corruption commission federally. Um, they had a view that the coalition didn't want it, whether how right that was or not. Um, there was a whole bunch of reasons, and and yeah, just to I mean I I don't like it when our premier distills everything down to COVID, and I certainly disagree with that characterisation that it, the, the federal loss was about COVID. Okay. Um, well, exclusively. Well, I find the, I, mean, I hear what you're saying, there's an it's time factor, but the attitude is really what I'm annoyed about, where you slap the people and say, well, they were irritated and we were saving the nation and it, it, they just wanted to stretch their legs. I, I'm, well, what we want to talk about in this segment is the rise of the independents. And so yeah. I'll rip into you a little bit about the sure. liberals, right? Sure, sure. But <clears throat> we have independents like Ingrid Manor running for the Victorians party. Why are, why are Australians turning to independents, whether it's Teal's? or uh, in Victoria, you would hope your party. Yeah, absolutely. So so I'm not an independent. Um, I'm the leader of the Victorians party. So we're a party. But I hear what you're saying. I think that, you know, any alternative really needs to be a genuine alternative. One of the things, even though I, you know, from, from observation, the Teals only really stood for one thing, climate which change. was climate change. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, that seemed to work, but I actually would say that we need to dig a little bit deeper around why they were actually so successful. One of the things that I've heard and, and I've observed as well um, from people that were in some of those areas was that they, they ran a campaign based on getting out and about in the community, mm. understanding what really mattered to people, listening. And so I think it was, you know, perhaps not just about climate change, but I'd say for the most part, people felt like they knew them, mm. that they, you know, that they cared. Mm. Um, I've met her. I've, you know, I've spoken to her. She was really nice. Whereas for for a lot of Victorians, they couldn't say that about, you know, their their local Labor mm. member who may probably <laughs> doesn't even live in the area. Um, and for 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 many MPs, and I know that Ryan's not one of those, very very locally connected, but. You know, for, for many MPs, doesn't matter which side of politics, they're just totally disconnected from their communities. And I think that we we see that over and over again. And I actually think it was Australians' way of saying, enough, we, we've just had enough of these career politicians and we'd like to, to put somebody forward who we feel actually really cares about us and has taken the time to listen. I, uh, yes, I am feeling that because you know I'm a swing, swinging voter, yes. Ryan, but if, if my choice is between that guy, <laughs> who I probably align with more on a policy yeah. level, yeah. or Monique Ryan in the uh, Frydenberg seat, I would probably go with Monique Ryan because of that. You would feel I connected, yeah. I feel connected, and you you know, you know do the same thing. Look, we live and die about, you know, depending on your, the strength of the support in your seat, you know, there's, mm. well, safe seats are becoming rapidly a thing of the past, as Josh found out um, if you're not connected to your community you you rightly should be turfed out having said that that's often not why you are turfed out you're turfed out because people don't like your leader people don't like a, a, a policy that you know is one of many that you've put out people are annoyed that you don't have a policy amongst one of many that you put out so there's a whole different range of reasons but you know I, I've always found you know I went to a, a community meeting last night down at uh, Nepean with our candidate um, quite a big issue, you know, without going into it, the local member wasn't there. Uh, so we've got the candidate, the Labor, you know, the Labor member wasn't there. And, you know, I, you know as uh, taking the opportunity, made the point to these people on of several course, occasions, this is an issue that your local member should be at. You've got a big yeah. community disquiet about a certain issue. They should be here to advocate for you. That's their role. Mm. So I think um, you've got to be connected and, you know, and, and sometimes that, that 
connectivity will get you that extra half a percent that you need yes. to actually hold your seat. Um, but, you know, I, 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 at the last election, I had uh, Greens, Labor and Animal Justice running against me. Yes. And, and we had a community forum. And the thing about a, with great respect, I don't think we're far away in terms of our, our views on things and small businesses are a huge part of the Liberal Party's base. But I take a party like Animal Justice, you know, 99.9% .9 of the things that are discussed in Parliament are not that. Yep. So an independent, like an animal justice person or an independent that's just not with a party at all, yeah. becomes very transactional. Mm -hmm. You know, they want the government to deal with their issue. Like Rob Barton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you'll deal with my, I'll, I'll help you with your legislation yeah. because I have no views about it. Yes. But you need to give me something for my issue. Yeah. And so independents yes. become very transactional, <laughs> whereas... Liberal and Labor, and probably to a lesser extent, Greens and Nationals, have a set of values that are quite entrenched. So you know where they're going to go on a certain issue. And if you want them to move, if the government of the day wants us to move, you know, and comes to me, I've got to convince my leadership team, shadow cabinet, the yeah. party room. There's yeah. no just like, you know, give me a bit on the side, whatever that is. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that Rod Barton got anything, but I don't know what he got. Maybe oh, he, he just liked something. the tweaks in the... No, in the well, we don't know. That's the well, thing. We don't know. The major parties... We know. They don't... They, they, the major know. parties are more... <laughs> are more accountable by their own, I guess, is the way to put it. And and the other thing I would say in that in that forum that I had with the animal justice guy is... State politics in particular is quite local. Now, I, I think, I'm guessing that I might have two or three minor parties that are, are against me. Some will be aligned, some not. I don't reckon one of the candidates will know, for instance, all of the state schools in my electorate. Yeah, hmm. but you know, you, you're uh, standing at them all the time, I see. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I think local, particularly incumbent MPs, but I mean, I know through our pre-selection process, it's a bit of a gotcha question for pre-selection candidates. You know, mm. do you know your schools? Do you know where your boundaries are? Do you yeah. know this sort of thing? So we go through that process of making sure that our candidates know the electorate that they're nominating for. And as MPs, we know the electorates that we've, we've been the incumbent for. Mm. I would say this animal justice guy and the Labor person who in my area was from Kew, <laughs> Um, didn't know those basic of things. Course. And I think that, you know, whoever stands for the Victorians Party or Animal Justice or whoever in yeah. my electorate will not know that base level stuff that is an important part about the connectivity that you're talking about, Ingrid. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, absolutely um, understand where, where you're coming from. And I think that this is, this is why we, you know, we were created and why we formed, because we, we would really like to hold the balance of power in the Victorian Parliament so that we can keep both sides accountable, but particularly whoever is in power. Um, and let's just say it is, you know, the Labor government. <sighs> but let's just <laughs> say it painful? is. Was that difficult? You know, they, they absolutely need to be checked. There needs to be For some sure. account accountability um, and some, some revelation of, you know, how they're making their decisions. And, th and that needs to change. So, you know, unlike an independent, um, and we intend to have all, you know, 88 uh, districts um, with candidates in them who do know their their uh, regions incredibly well inside out and upside down because they come from those areas like you just mentioned before you know the person down in in Nepean you know lives in Kew um, you know the the Labor MP in Broadmeadows lives in Brighton um, you know the the person that's going to be in Point Cook or appointed to Co Point Cook <laughs> lives in Carrum mm -hmm. you know it, it's it's just a joke and I think Victorians are educated enough now 
thanks to the lockdown, they've done their own research and, and they're better informed than ever and they're going to make informed decisions and say enough is enough. Okay, you two keep on agreeing. I have a real problem with, um, let's talk about the, the accusation that, what do they say? Liberals don't stand for anything. You've heard this accusation, sure. right? <clears throat> You've made a, a good defence of why you want a party structure and you can hash it out and then be consistent and we know what you're going to vote along which lines roughly. But that same process also dilutes you, I would argue. So my wife the other day, she says, Liberals, um, she's, she's generally the liberal supporter, I'm more of a swinging voter. I've voted for Bill Shorten twice, right? She says, uh, liberals don't stand for anything. I said, what do you mean? Like, can you explain this to me? And she says, Daniel Andrews stands for something. What? Lockdowns? All the agendas. Oh, how dare you. No, <laughs> look, at, look at his spin. Yes, it could be propaganda, granted. But he, he stands up and says, I will make L&P platers free because I value whatever. Or he'll say even bigger issues. I stand with the LGBTIQ community or I or in, in New South Wales. We're going to fly a... Uh, Aboriginal flag on top of the bridge or Albanese, we're going to climate change. They stand for strong things, whether those are mirages or not. There's a strong thing. And the flag issue in New South Wales is a great example. Dom Perrottet, liberal, full-on Catholic, a million children conservative. Uh, he just gives in to the um, Aboriginal can, can flag. Can I just comment on that, you know, that Daniel Andrews stands for something? Because I would actually say that making those sweeping statements actually doesn't mean that you stand for anything. Mm. He might say, I'm standing with a particular part of the community. But, you know, I think, I think what it comes down to is actually backing up what you're saying with, you know, if you're going to stand for something, you need to back it up with, with right action, not just further restrictions and and. and making life a lot harder for most Victorians, I would actually say he doesn't. Having said that, I think that, you know, that opinion that you've just raised before about, you know, at least he stands for something, I think a lot of Victorians, unfortunately, have seen his bullying tactics as, you know, a sign of strength. And, you know, it has been unfortunate that the, the Liberal Party, again, yeah, yeah, that's right. you know, accepted here, but, um, the, you know, the Liberal Party, for the, for the most part, has been silent. And um, I think that they do stand for a lot. It's just unfortunate that we haven't heard about it and that we're not reminded of what they actually do stand for. Well, I've gone deep. In, I, I listened to my wife's criticisms of the Liberal Party, and, I, and I, then I reviewed, you know, you're very active on Facebook, Southwick is active, Matthew Guy is active. They are actually quite vocal, if you, you look, right? So it's not that you're not standing up for stuff, but not in the same way. I'm starting to understand what my wife is saying, because you guys are more of a concern. When I had you on to interview, you said I stand for and all these things. It yep. was beautiful. Yep. That's not what I hear from the Liberal Party in but general. where are you expecting to hear it? That's probably my first question. I often say this to people, you know, they say we're not hearing enough from you. When you're in government, that's when I expect it. And we're not getting it. Well, we're not in government. I know, I know. But when the Liberal Party, but federal and state are in government, you roll over to a left agenda. That's what happens. I think that that's a simplistic way of looking at it. But I would say, I mean, I'll go back to we're talking about the current times and we're in opposition. We're looking to form government and, and not accept that for your wife... Um, she's not hearing us say that we stand for anything. And I would say to her, well, what are you, where are you looking for us to say something? I mean, we're saying it on social media. We get a run in the paper. The paper doesn't run our comment again the next day and then the day after and the day after that. Yeah. You know, we, we are on every medium that we can possibly be 
talking about no more lockdowns. I think when people said um, over the two years of lockdowns, you know, you don't stand for anything, we don't hear enough from you. I think they were actually saying, mm. you're not doing anything to stop this, which mm. in a democratic system, we can't. Mm. We can make all the noise we mm. want. And, you know, we had, as we were going out, particularly when uh, Michael O'Brien was a leader, well, you're too negative. All you're doing is being negative. That was the common criticism. Mm. You're just going negative, negative all the time. Mm. Well, that's us standing for your freedoms mm. is being negative. We're opposing what this guy's doing. And so people were frustrated that Morrison wasn't coming in and telling Andrews what to do. And people were frustrated that our side in opposition wasn't doing something to change things. Gee, they were frustrated with the governor coming in and not, you know, not doing anything. Which is ridiculous. They were just, there was this, but there was just this incredible blanket frustration, which translated to, well, I don't like Morrison because he's not stopping the restrictions. I don't like the opposition because they're not stopping the restrictions. So what do you even stand for? I'm talking well, we about stood something. every day and, you know, I spoke in parliament, you know, as often as I could on the issue, as did Matthew, as did all of my colleagues. You know, that's, that's what we were doing. That's what we stood for. We stood for you getting your freedoms back. But I'm talking more broadly, I think, even on an ideological level, because even you and I have had conversations during the protest restriction period where you were expressing to me and, and I was saying the, the frustration of, of you wanted to help the community more, but it is difficult to stand on the steps of parliament at an illegal protest, right? Which I did a couple of times. Well, it was, I yeah. stood on there with you one time. Yeah. But it, it is a balancing act that you have to play in that party where you're trying to collect, you're trying not to ruffle too many feathers and the Labor Party doesn't have the same sensitivity. Dan Andrews will stand up and say something outrageous and when you guys criticise, he'll say, well, screw you, I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. When you guys stand up and say, we're going to do something, they attack you and you all fold. Well, so, I don't agree with that because I, I think that there's plenty of examples where we just, I mean, we've been uh, raising and fighting for this for everyone on the hospital waiting list mm -hmm. and those who are waiting for triple O calls to be answered. We've been talking about that in Parliament for the best part of eight months. Yeah, but I'm talking about ideology now. Oh, so I, you're I, right. I can, go, I can go through the you know party platform and tell you what the party stands for and well, what well, I stand for. Give me an example, Is right? That, so Bernie Finn, you booted yeah. out of your party. I'm not yeah. a fan of Bernie Finn. No. But I'm a fan, and you know he can be a bit loose. I understand why he was tarnishing your brand you had to boot him out. But why? Like, Labor don't do that. They have radical, radical, radical socialist left lefties, and they don't boot them out to protect really? their image. Adam Somurek? Yeah, corruption, that's why it was booted out. They booted out, well, they didn't boot out from I'm, the party, but they removed from from cabinet Luke Donnellan, Marlene Carews. Yeah, but not for ideological reasons. They, they will be bold. So Bernie Finn and Craig but, Kelly... No, but we, and, hang on, hang on, hang on. Hang on. Yeah. We didn't knock out Bernie for ideological reasons. We knocked out Bernie because there was inappropriate stuff that was continually putting on social media, and he had no discipline. And the core question for me, personally, was do I trust that something stupid's not going to be put up a week before my election? No, I don't. There was continuous. You don't... There's things you don't do on social media as a politician, and it was continuous. It wasn't about his views. It wasn't about ideology. It was a lack of discipline. So you and don't... a criticism of his leader and his leader's direction. Yeah, I saw that. So you don't see what I'm seeing in a, in a broad sense across every state and federal um, liberals being more shy than Labor parties being more bold on the ideological issues, whether that's flags or trans rights or whatever. Um, I, I think what you're saying is, what you said earlier is right. You don't want to ruffle, ruffle feathers. And the difference between the Liberal Nationals in Coalition and say the Victorians Party or Liberal Dems, we are the alternative government. Yeah. You know, David Limbrick is not going to be Premier. 
no matter what he says or does. He, like, he's not going to be president, Premier. Matthew Guy is, so he has to be more measured in his approach. Yeah. He has to make sure that he appeals to um, a much wider variety of people. You know, David Limbrick will try to get, um, uh, stir up a base with a commentary. Um, I didn't hear David offer anything in terms of, you know, getting lost learning back for our kids. I didn't hear him say anything. He said it's bad that they're losing their learning, but as the alternative government, it's incumbent on us to come up with policies, yeah. articulate them, and be measured in our approach. But hang on, you're comparing yourselves to independents or minor parties, which I would probably which agree with you. About. You know, it is. But now I'm talking about comparing why liberals don't stand for anything, that accusation. I'm comparing you to Labor, where, for example, if I got up in five years from now and said, look, I, as the new uh, conservative liberal premier of New South Wales, want to remove the Aboriginal flag from the Harbour Bridge and restore the New South Wales flag, I would be roundly castigated as a racist, anti-Indigenous um, people because I'm trying to remove their Aboriginal flag. So I see this creeping cultural change happening when the, the flag is now... I don't really have a problem with the flag being on the bridge. I'm just saying it's happened. And now I'm a racist if I say I want the New South Wales flag back on. And that's what I'm saying. Whether Liberal gets in or Labor gets in, I feel like the Labor policies are winning at the end of the Do day. Do you think that it's a... It's a, a so my observation is, and I think that this has been a, a, a global phenomenon, is, you know, with, with both of the major parties sort of moving, you know, further and further kind of to the centre and now they're kind of, you know, finding their feet. Um, do you think it's just an articulation, you know, and a proper articulation and a thoughtfulness around, you know, reading the room, number one, and then also being able to say, well, well, you know, sometimes we're, we're not going to be liked by everyone and sometimes we are going to be unpopular, but, but this is what we know is right and here are our reasons and that we can clearly articulate that. I'm, I mean, I'm just asking the question. You're saying wondering. Liberals should do that. I don't feel they do that enough. I, I think that all politicians should. I mean, I think that what Daniel Andrews does is he bullies he and, he, and he forces, runs, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, he, he can. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm, and I'm sure that there are people that will emerge from his government in, in years to come that will have some very... Uh, interesting tales to tell about how that whole um, government was was run by, by one man in particular. But I, I think on all sides of government, I think that it, what I think Victorians want, and that's really what we're, we're here to talk about, is is courage and direction and hope. And, and I think that you know, coming back to why we formed in the first place, and it's easy for us, we, we've just started. So all yes. of our reasons for being are yeah. incredibly fresh, they're yeah. real. But I think sometimes it's good to go back to the start and think about why, we, why we're here in the first place, um, why we're different, and then offering that real choice. That's what I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, okay. Look, thank you for hearing my frustration. No, no, I just no. don't feel it's being addressed. Let's take another issue. Uh, there is a bunch of people in, in liberal parties around the country who are Christian, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a religion, and you probably may think a bunch in the Labor Party as well. Probably, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, and you may think that um, most people in Australia are secular, uh, irreligious, fine. And they would think that these Christians, like Tony Abbott, are a bit crazy in their views, fine. But there's a lot of you. But when a law comes up, like um, at the moment, it's illegal in Victoria to say men can't be women and women can't be men or there are only two genders. It's the only state I'm aware of in Australia where that's illegal. You can prosecute church pastors for standing up and saying that on the, on, on the podium. If you get up now 
in Victoria as a politician and say, well, I want to wind back these anti, I can't remember what laws that they were, anti-conversion therapy or whatever, whatever law that comes under, you're, you're, no one will do that. No liberal man will stand up to do that. But a Labor person will stand up and fight for some ideological battle. So I just see a difference. And that difference, I understand because the media mostly back Labor, and I get that. But what ends up happening is over 50 years, the whole culture of the country moves a particular direction because you're, you won't or you're unable to prosecute a conservative argument. It moves in that particular direction until the public say no and change. You know, that's what democracy is about. It's saying that the direction of the, of the country or the state, as the case may be, is not going where we want, so we change. And, you know, at the to the moment, Greens, like this is what happens. Well, you push them left and you end up with a new generation of young voters who are voting for Teals and Greens. Um, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I was surprised during the federal campaign when I was assisting our federal candidate that the UAP and Liberal Democrat people were handing out were mostly under 30. Mm. It, it surprised me it, it, in a good way yeah. <laughs> um, that it yeah. wasn't all one way. I mean, these people that I spoke to, I mean, they were, it was largely about uh, rebellion against the lockdowns. Mm. Okay. But they were out there basically saying that, you know, the left agenda was not one for them. They didn't like being told what to do. They didn't like having that time stolen from them. No. So, you know, I think we, I mean, in my experience, most young people, rather than going to the, to the left or the right, they're largely disengaged. Mm. You know, we, we, we think about the activists. We think about the young people who are out there with the Greens or with the Teals and everything. The vast majority don't think about politics and they'll go in on the vibe of the of the premier or the prime minister, I don't like him. He's an idiot. You, you know, I, I can. If you went and picked twenty five people from my local one of my local footy clubs, their engagement with politics is zero. So they're not moving to the left or moving to the right. They're just living their lives. Yeah, that's a fair statement. So Plato quote right: the curse for those who are disengaged from politics is to be ruled by those who are engaged in politics. Do you also think though that? You know, it's interesting because I've got a 20-year-old at home and, um, you know, <laughs> never, he's a musician, he's certainly not a political animal. But I, I, he's got some pretty strong opinions about certain things and, and they don't follow one, mm. you know, kind of line of, of mm. political opinion or ideology at all. He sees it as common sense. And I'm just wondering, you know, if the last two years has actually created an opportunity for a couple of different generations, you know, and I kind of count myself, and I'm certainly no, no spring chicken, um, but I've been predominantly apolitical, but I, I just wonder if the last couple of years has woken a lot of people up and has perhaps made non-political or apolitical people all of a sudden curious uh, to find out more about what's really going on and what, what power they actually do have. And, and I'm encouraged to see that, you know, whether I agree with them or I don't agree with them, I'm encouraged to see people using people power and their, and their voices to start to question, to start to, you know, explore a little bit more and to start to have an opinion beyond what they're, they're told in the media or by our state government. Um, and to start thinking for themselves. I, I think that's really encouraging. I, I agree. I've wanted young people to get more involved in politics. I, I actually am a big believer in democracy. I, I, you know, I, I think that the gift we have in this country to be able to vote is amazing. You know, when, when you see regimes fall in the Middle East and people are allowed to go and vote, it's, you know, they risk their lives. And I think we take it yeah. for granted. Um, 
many people take it for granted and I, I love the idea that people get more engaged and I love the idea that you know despite the the impact that the last two years had it made a lot of people go actually the government has a lot of power over me mm. they, they I see that they generally don't use it but they actually do have it mm. and they have used it in this case so let's have a bit closer look at these people um, who are standing for, for office and, and see what they're actually going to do and I think um, if we get more young people interested in having a look at what's what they can do in the process then I'm all for it I, I have no problem with engaging on any topic with any person of any demographic you know I want I'd rather have someone do a deep dive on my beliefs and me yeah. personally and my party's beliefs than just go oh, I don't, don't like the look of you or I don't like your leader or whatever yeah you made me cry when you uh, you made me tear up in that interview do you remember that when yeah. you're talking about the beliefs of the part and I was sitting there tearing up hey uh, let me throw out one last thing for this segment we're talking about the rise of independence and, and minor parties I've misnamed the segment <clears throat> what about this what do you think my theory? I, I feel like we're going to end up with a Trump. At the moment, we're seeing independents rise up and we're seeing minor parties rise up for a reason. So even if you're correct, the population aren't listening to your argument because they are voting for more and more for Greens, for Teals and uh, UAP and whatever, right? And if, if, even if I'm wrong in my sentiment here saying I feel like and my wife feels like liberals are not standing for anything, that conservative vote has to go somewhere. Yeah. And I'm concerned we end up with a wrecking ball like Trump who will be just as wrecking as Daniel Andrews and will come in and go bang. Well, remember when Trump got in, it was about straight talking mm. um, and just a riding roughshod over the minority mm. chatter on Twitter mm. and the like. Um, my view is, I'm speaking very generally here, but the further you get out from the CBD, the less people embrace wokeness and... Mm. Mm. Um, gender politics and all that sort of stuff you know mm. they, they just they're either not interested not engaged or mm. they just really hate it I mean I've spoken to a number of faith groups in particular who just they find all that conversation abhorrent yeah but I also spoken to people out in the growth corridors who it's just to them okay. you know I'm just paraphrasing them yeah. it's just stupid yeah, yeah. Uh, why are we spend you know I, yeah. I, I can't afford to pay my electricity bill yeah. and we're worried about you know yeah. bathrooms toilets are there yeah. you know that's yeah. the kind of feedback that I get. Yeah. So if, you know, if we were to get someone who stood up and said, enough of that stuff, I'm not going to engage in that anymore, it's just of no interest to people, let's just move on, yeah. we may well. Again, having said that, you look <laughs> at your Craig Kellys and your Clive Palmers and yeah. the complete, um, for want of a better word, circus around their campaign, yeah. no the money spent and failure. just no votes. I'm worried that, though, that that's too early, their 10 years too well, early. And maybe that's the case. Maybe that's the case. And it's certainly, if someone came out and cut through and all the, the wokeness and the, and the um, you know, use the phrase, um, drain the swamp, all yeah. that sort of stuff, yeah, yeah. I see a section of our community, quite a large section, embracing it. Mm. I do, but it's not mm. there, it's not here yet. And I think that I those the results of those votes, even with, um, you know, David Limbrick, who I respect in many, many ways, you know. It was a poor result. 10,000 Twitter followers does not equal getting a spot in hundred percent. Well, he has like 100,000 Twitter or whatever, yeah. Yeah. In Facebook, and he got like 10th of yeah, that. But it's, yeah, it's it doesn't, terrible. It doesn't equate Twitter no. and social media is this little sphere. And as I, as I said to you before, Matthew, you know, people who I associate with outside of politics wouldn't know who the Lib Dems are, wouldn't mm. know who David Limbrick was. When the LP person was standing on the booth, it, that just wouldn't have even been a consideration for him because they wouldn't know anything about him. And I would say that there's, you know, there's 
disenfranchised voters on both sides. You know, I think that there's, you know, a traditional heartland of the Liberal base that, you know, doesn't recognise themselves anymore in, you know, in the, the Liberal Party in general, although there's definitely going to be pockets where they go, oh, yes, you're like me. I, you know, I want to, yeah, yes, why, why aren't you saying more? Um, just as there are, I think, people who would have always thought of themselves as Labor voters, traditional Labor voters, mm. who are sick to their stomachs mm. about what's been happening. Um, and so I, I don't know about the, 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 the rise of a Trump, um, certainly not in Victoria, um, but I, I do think that they do need an alternative. And, you know, I'm going to put my hand up here and say, you know, I think that you know, what, what we're hoping to do is to be the voice of reason in the sensible centre and say, hey, <laughs> you know, we, we have heard you and we are an alternative for you to, to place a vote to if you no longer feel like you're connected to your traditional one party or the other. <clears throat> vote V1. Hey, look, uh, to finish this off, I, I am maybe wrong, but I'm concerned that a form of a Trump is coming. And I'm just saying to the Liberal Party, if you tolerate a little bit more crazy within your ranks, you could have that relief valve. If you kick it all out of your ranks and you become super professional and you end up with no Craig Kellys and Bernie Finns and whatever, uh, they're going to go somewhere. And we're going to end up with a Trumpian phenomenon of an Australian version of that in 10 years' time. And I would prefer we don't have that. Yeah, I think a bit it's of a wrecking ball. Yeah, it's a little bit too much of an overcorrection. Anyway, we need to move on because we're going to talk... Oh, gee, look at the time. We need to talk about the most important thing, I think, is this... Tendency for Australians and everyone around the world, really, in Commonwealth countries to support increasing government uh, controls on mm, misinformation. introduced this morning. Uh, it's just gone through the House this evening. Uh, members of the crossbench were not given any briefing on this bill. We did not get an explanatory memorandum. I note that the Minister has just tabled one. Uh, I just want to put on Hansard that we've had no opportunity to consider this. Clearly the uh, opposition has. This is an urgent bill, according to the speeches that I've just heard uh, late into the evening uh, just now, and I want to make it very clear that uh, as a member of this parliament, I've had no opportunity to consider it at all. Bill grants the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission the power to modify, add, copy or delete data on a person's online accounts, is what I'm reading. So what this means is basically the AFP can hack your email, your Facebook, 
your Instagram, many other social media, not only view it, but actually alter it however they want. They can send emails on your behalf, they can post things on your behalf, they can engage in criminal activity on your behalf if it's, you know, in order to carry out their operation. Okay, so the identify and disrupt bill is, you know, when you see this kind of stuff, sorry for the, the as someone who creates content, that music was way overdone. Don't, don't make content like that. Uh, but it's uh, actually quite scary. So I interviewed Greg Barnes, senior counsel, a barrister <clears throat> from Melbourne in Tasmania, who uh, has been working on this and writing on this, quite a well-respected barrister in this field. And yes, it does give the power to the feds to literally hack Discernible's account and post in, in trap and not even entrap, uh, literally do illegal things. Now, the argument for the Identify and Disrupt Bill is against terrorism, okay, fine. Uh, we wanna protect our, our, we don't want someone to blow up a school, so we maybe it's okay that we take over somebody's account and, and bait in the big terrorist and catch the big terrorist. Okay, fine. But what happens when this starts to move towards misinformation? Like literally, we're gonna start controlling misinformation. Anti-free speech legislation is coming. It threatens our free expression, our right to privacy, and even an open internet. So what is the online safety bill, and why should we be worried? One, private Silicon Valley policing. Believe it or not, there are voices off who would rather this bill didn't happen. The online safety bill sees the state command Silicon Valley to act as private police. This means that the likes of Facebook will have to make determinations on what is and isn't illegal on their platforms. This undermines due process and the rule of law. Crime online needs to be dealt with, but through the police and the courts, not tech executives. Two, threat to freedom of expression. The government have created a new category of online free speech, which they deem to be harmful. What constitutes harmful speech is whatever the government of the day says it is. The bill is going to cause platforms to censor and take down more online expression than ever before. It will rip up hundreds of years of British free speech standards. Number three, political control. The government plans to appoint Ofcom as their new online speech regulator. Ofcom will be given the powers to punish platforms who don't police their sites strictly enough. But the government have given themselves powers to influence Ofcom and set the standards for what should and shouldn't be allowed on the web. This is a dangerous precedent and could easily lead to political censorship online. Four, attacks on privacy. The online safety bill will see the state force platforms to use new surveillance technology to scan everything that we post on their sites. This is a chilling development, but if that wasn't enough, the bill will also force platforms to scan our private messages and seeks to bring in new ID for access systems by using age verification technology. Privacy and security are mutually reinforcing concepts and many people need privacy to keep themselves safe. The bill must not undermine this fundamental right. Number five, failure to tackle surveillance capitalism. At the heart of social media companies' business models is the mass commodification of users' sheer online presence. This is despite the fact that these models drive many of the problems that we associate with the online world. Mass corporate surveillance techniques are used to pry over individuals' every move online. These data gathering practices feed algorithms that cater content to users, particularly that which is sensational, in order to keep us online, gather more data, sell more products, and continue this cycle. By making Silicon Valley's practices state-backed, this entire system of what has become known as surveillance capitalism will become entrenched. Yeah, I know the online safety bill, yeah. Yeah, it's complete. This is a Conservative Party doing what the Conservative Party isn't supposed to do. Very bad, very bad. It wouldn't be breathing anymore. 
Despite the near total collapse of the government last week, Nadine Dorries is absolutely determined to press ahead with her censorious online safety bill. The bill gives her an enormous amount of power to restrict our speech online and forces companies to snoop on our private messages. The government aren't listening to our concerns. They don't think that you care about free speech or this bill. So we've come down here to show them why they're wrong. And do you know who Nadine Dorries is? Yes. What would you think about Nadine Dorries giving herself more power to restrict what we can and can't say online? I'm not, I wouldn't be too happy about it. What would you think about Nadine Dorries giving herself power to restrict what we can and can't say online? Yeah, I know the online safety bill, yeah. Yeah, it's a complete attack on press freedom. And uh, yeah, I think it's one of those ways where they're just undermining everything that this country's about. I know she's a really bad novelist. How would you feel if Nadine Dorries gave herself more power to restrict what we can and can't say online? Very concerned about that. Normally, speech is set in laws, police, courts, you know, follow due process, but one minister having a, a huge amount of power to influence the, the limitations. Would you be worried about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think our government kind of works on this, like, um, good chaps type theory where you, you kind of think everyone's going to be, you know, follow the, the unwritten rules, but lately that's not happened. That's not going to happen anymore. I think this, uh, if this bill goes through, it's going to cause a lot of damage because everyone likes to think that the government you elect is going to be all right and, you know, didn't vote for them, but gave them the benefit of the doubt. And then now I think they've abused it and this will open it up for more abuse. I think this, this, this current government, as long as it's still lasting, has been uh, fairly illiberal and has been, I, I've seen a lot of things around uh, reducing freedoms. Um, so the process bill that went through is grave, grave concern. Would you be worried if we started to kind of tip in favour of more censorship and that kind of thing? No, I think, I think we need more freedom of speech. Fantastic. Yes. We've always maintained freedom of speech here and uh, it shouldn't be up to the government at all. Yeah, and I think he's a very bad idea. In individuals and ministries in the in the government shouldn't have more and more power. They should, they should be devolving it to other people, yeah? Fantastic. We've seen that the behaviour is not controlled, it's not well controlled, so why do we want people who can't control themselves to control us? I think the main thing is holding the big tech companies properly accountable yeah. rather than handing them kind of more powers. And I'm not convinced that the online safety bills is going to do that. I feel like at times it feels like a window dressing to address the problem rather than actually the public democratic accountability of the big tech companies. I don't actually think that um, everyone has freedom of speech depending on the circumstances, so depending on the demographic. I think that actually we all think that we've got freedom of speech, but I actually think some people's voices are not heard. And what do you think about um, Nadine Dorries or the government restricting freedom of speech? Would you be worried about that? Very worried, definitely. It wouldn't be Britain anymore. Are you worried about the online safety bill? I'm sure George loves the uh, UK online safety bill, but this is the point. We've just been talking whilst that five minute clip was playing, saying it's one thing for terrorism, right, to create folk posts on your account and control speech, which, you know, I don't think is a good idea. But anyway, you could justify that. But there is a creeping assumption, shall we say, in Victoria, uh, that we need to apply it to misinformation. So we've just heard about the UK online safety bill. I need to tell you all that a Conservative Party lawmaker, John Penrose, has proposed an amendment. And uh, I don't know if it's going to get up yet or not because of the new prime minister situation in the UK. This whole bill is on hold. But in his amendment, I'll, I'll put this on screen now. Um, he is saying that Ofcom, so that's the Office of Communications in the UK, will have the responsibility to check factual accuracy of communications. 
any regulated service must provide an index of the historical factual accuracy of material published by each user who has produced user-generated content, comments and reviews on provider contact, whose content is viewed more widely than a minimum threshold to be defined by who, not us or society, but by Ofcom, of course. And this is the key. It must satisfy minimum quality criteria. That what you write must satisfy minimum quality criteria to be set by Ofcom uh, and must be presented in a way uh, that enables anyone to reach an informed view of the likely factual accuracy of the content at the time they encounter it. And of course, the purpose of this is to reduce the risk of harm. This is what I'm talking about. We have this here, you know, with the, um, trust, with the uh, Trusted Digital Identity Bill. You know that in the federal bill? Enlighten me. Yeah, the Trusted Digital Identity Bill is, is like the UK one I've just been talking about, where ScoMo and friends, well, it's really the eSafety Commissioner and, and DTA, are saying we need to protect people online by forcing a digital identity so you can't be anonymous online because of misinformation and harm to our community. So can you see the slippery slope we're going down here? Well, the word protection, that just is a red flag straight away for me, you know, to protect people. Um, you know, the, the word terrorism, you know, is there a clear definition of that? I think that, you know, terms are really important. If we're going to be referring to terms or if the government's going to be referring to terms, we need to be really clear about what it is and what it isn't, you know. And all of a sudden, you talked about that that creeping, mm. you know, definition of what you know what terrorism is towards misinformation. You know, what happened to freedom of expression? What happened to a difference of opinion? What happened to people's right to express, you know, what what it is that they'd like to express? I was under the understanding that that was part of being you know, in a democracy, and particularly when it's not inciting people into action and being very, very clear about what that really means, rather than someone expressing themselves passionately or having a very firm opinion about something, you know, why is it important for people to have, you know, historical references when they're on social media? You know, it, 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 to me, this really smacks of control and overuse of power than it does about, you know, trusting its society. It says to me, if a government can't trust that its citizens are allowed to have freedom of expression within reason, obviously. But so what that, is that within reason? Yeah, See, that's the key. Same thing. Who's so the within reason, I think, is is when it's when it's even when even when um, some people might be really offended by that. Um, I think that there still needs to be some freedom of expression there so that there's, there can be the opportunity for debate. Without opposing opinions, there is no debate. You shut debate down, and I think that's where you get into dangerous territory. I agree. Even if it's misinformation, I'd argue, leave it there. Okay, look at this. Facebook now and all social media platforms, right? They pop up warnings. This might be misinformation. We fact-checked it. No, the earth is not round, it's actually flat. That would have happened back in the day, right? So they take the best science they have at the time, we hope, and they, they put a counter view to what I wrote, which is the earth is round, or heliocentric solar system. I'm okay with that. That's just more voices. More. Mm. What I don't I have a problem is if they shut down my post saying we live in a heliocentric solar system. Mm. I, I totally agree with you on that. I think that everyone's issue should be out there, and I agree, Ingrid, you know, you shut down debate, you shut down any sensible progress and I think we're all about we seem to be all about shutting down you know dissenting views nowadays it seems to go 
you know, we, we, we dissenting have to... views that the government, you know, yeah. You know if if, if I if I'm the government and I say that this is the truth, and you actually say, well, the emperor really doesn't have any mm. clothes, mm. you know, then there's punishment for that, mm -hmm. yes, and that's there not, is. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Let me push it though. I should be able now. I don't agree with this view, but I should. We should not ban someone who says, "Covid is fake, vaccines are poison, and they're trying to kill the entire human race." Because if you start shutting that down, which is clearly false, if you shut that down, you're going to keep creeping to the point now where they're shutting me down. They literally have. Shut, I've had a vaccine inventor on the show called Professor Nikolai Petrovsky, and they've banned our account for seven days on Facebook for publishing an interview in which he promotes getting vaccinated. Anyway, because it wasn't a Pfizer vaccine. Uh, He's made his own vaccine. We have to allow crazies to say the earth is flat or the vaccines are poisoning to kill the whole planet. Because if we start shutting that down, what else are we going to shut down? Just put whatever warnings you want, invite more speech, pillory them, mock them, whatever. But yeah. don't censor even the crazies. Well, interesting, you know, when I, during the last two years, particularly when the pandemic bill was being pushed by the government, there was obviously a day by day demonstration on the steps of parliament and I went out and spoke to them. Um, the Premier of the day labelled them right-wing fascists and neo-Nazis. Yeah. And, well, the government moved a motion against me and three of my colleagues mm. um, saying that we were inciting violence by going out and talking to these people. Wow. And that See, motion remains this is, this is what we're on doing. the motion paper in Parliament. It wow. has yet to be debated, but it's remains still on the paper. May I just say absolute respect for doing that. Thanks. <laughs> but if a government, if any elected member... So councillor, any, any elected official is going to be told who they can and can't speak to, mm. then that's representative democracy gone out the window. Yep. I speak to lots of people whose views I don't agree with, yeah. mm. but I speak to them mm. yeah. because that's my job. Yeah. And at the very minimum, you know, I've, I've seen people on those stairs in, on, parliament, on the steps of parliament who were my constituents. Mm. That's right. So if you're saying, as a government, I'm labelling them and, and ridiculously, you know, has, it's amazing how quickly things change. They were being characterised as left-wing, oh, sorry, right-wing fascists and neo-Nazis because they questioned the health advice right. and said, why do we have to adhere to it all the time? We don't have to. And now, only less than a year later, the current health minister's going... Well, I'm getting health advice, but I'm not going to be doing <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, no, no wonder why that was. So they're actually were campaigning and demonstrating yeah. for the very thing yeah. which the health minister of the government's now saying, which was some consideration for now. the broader issues. Yeah, that's right. And I'm going out supporting them, and I get... Before you do that, you need to tell people what you're actually talking about with the, the current health minister, Victoria, has received advice... That we should go back to mask mandates. Mandates. And... Yeah with a government that has consistently said we always take the health advice, never seen of course, but we always take yeah. the health advice, Good point. is now the fourth health minister in four years is now saying, I've received health advice and I'm taking into account other issues and we're not going to go with the health ah, advice. Marianne Thomas. Marianne I Thomas mean, has, has oh. said that they're going to reject the advice from the Victorian show. <laughs> so are we following health advice? Because I had multiple ministers from the Premier down with the phrase, we will always follow health advice. We go. knew rubbish. that word, but that was the, that was rubbish, the narrative. Rubbish, rubbish. And yeah. suddenly, what's happening now? I've got no idea. What the, is that a, a drastic change of policy because it was not noted as such? No, you're absolutely or is right. It, you know, there's an election five months. Oh, away. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it completely self-serving and convenient for them. 
Yeah. Back to the point though, is, is you are currently on the receiving end of this moving of definitions to now where you were inciting violence on the steps. So this is the thing, this identify and disrupt powers, maybe some people would agree with it, uh, but as we move definitions, misinformation, but, I'm worried they're gonna apply these yeah. powers. Look, I, I, my view, without knowing the piece of legislation intimately, mm. legislation such as this, um, bearing in mind that if a terrorist incident happens, the first thing that people will go is to the authorities and yep. say, why didn't you do more? Yep. Yep. But legislation such as, the, such as this, in my experience, um, with my 16 years in Parliament, is it needs to have safeguards, oversight, and a process of appeal. When, when it comes to speech, maybe we just don't need to have bans with oversight. Maybe just let we... people speak a bit more. Labelling you, uh, you inciting violence by standing on those steps is a joke. Talking to constituents. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right, so just so you know, there's a leaked email from uh, in between the eSafety Commissioner and DTA over this um, Trusted Digital Identity Bill and saying that the employees of um, DTA are very, very surprised to hear that the government wants to apply the digital identity to uh, monitoring and controlling misinformation in speech. So it's not all singing from the same song sheet in the government. Let's move on to our last segment, some smaller items, news without notice. All right, everyone, news without notice. So we already talked about the Victorian Health Minister now rejecting health advice. Okay, I guess we should celebrate it. Welcome to sanity, right? She's doing the right thing. Uh, I want to talk to you about this. Look at this. This is what happens when you print an Excel spreadsheet. That, that is only half of it. This is the Democracy Perception Index. Ah. Are you aware of it? Uh, only recently been alerted to it. Oh, from me? Yes. <laughs> okay, so 53,000 people across 53 countries. And I know people are gonna say, well, you know, limited sample size. Well, look, polls are polls. You, you take what you can get and this is, a decently big one. Uh, now, polls within each country uh, aren't that big because we're talking about 53,000 across 53 countries. So only about 1,000 people per country. So um, we're not looking at absolute results, we're looking at comparative analysis, okay? So for example, a majority of people say that they, in this, say that their country has limited freedoms too much during COVID. Now, as I said, relative, not absolute. So we need to look at the difference between countries rather than overall. So if you look at, for example, India, right at the top of the list, they very much say, my uh, government has done too much to do with COVID. But if you go right down to the bottom, you find that there are only three countries who actually believe that their country did not do too much. They did a good job. And that is China, for obvious reasons, Sweden, which they didn't really do a lot, and Taiwan, okay? Everyone else seems to think that their country did too much. And I wanna point out, I hope they didn't spend too much money on this poll because I could have told you that. That's a good point. <laughs> all right. So uh, that is true. However, it's good to have data to back up what we've all known. And if we look at some of these questions they ask, things like, I'm sure I'm out of the camera shot now, but anyway, in your opinion, how important is it for your country to be a democracy? And then is your country actually democratic? We find that in Australia, for example, 78% think democracy is really important, but only 62% believe we have it. And then next door in the United States is similar. 76 believe it's important, but only 49% believe they have it. Extraordinary. Yeah. And so these are some amazing questions like what are the threats to democracy? Turns out people mostly think income equality, power of big tech, limits of free speech are very, very, very big. And also corruption, which we know all about here in, in Victoria. Uh, 
my government usually acts in the best interest of, you know, this is an amazing survey, I'll put in the link below. But the point of this is to take away that it seems that uh, you are not in the minority if you believe governments have overreached. You perhaps are in the majority of billions of people. Is any of that a surprise? Not to you? No. No, not at all. And I think, um, well, there hasn't been many, but every election we've had in Australia post the lockdowns, the government has been removed. South Australia, uh, federally. No. Oh, all of them? Well, I think there's only been two. There's so only been far. two. Okay. So well, I'm hoping Victoria follows the trend. You know what's interesting? Top government priorities across all the Western nations are very high. Do you want to, what, what do you think it is? You've got climate change, gender equality, improve education, economic growth, reduce poverty, defence, healthcare, corruption, and immigration. Which reduce one's the most important? Yeah, which one is the highest government priority? Which of the following areas do you want your government to focus on more? The most popular in Western countries. Is it climate change? You would think that, wouldn't well, you? I would think it's that because the government would have me believe that. Fight climate change is down in the 8%. Is that right? Whereas 45% on improve education. Interesting. What about standard of living? Uh, promote economic growth is probably and reduce poverty. They're probably the, the closest. Yeah. So if we go to what, Australia? Mm -hmm. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven from the bottom is uh, promote economic growth. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So 26, very low. Australians would rather reduce poverty, 37. Mm. Um, improve healthcare is very high. Mm. But yeah, interesting. It, it is extraordinary. I, I had a conversation about this recently. Literacy and numeracy outcomes for our kids have, at best, you could argue they've plateaued, they've probably gone down. The governments don't really talk about it a lot. No, they don't. The future of our kids, yeah. their suitability for work, and essentially, you know, the thing that schools are supposed to be about, yeah. we don't seem to be talking about it enough, in my opinion. Yeah. I've got two kids in high school, and I kind of... There's not, I mean, there's not the focus that I think there should be on on some of these things, but we talk about curriculum only about adding things to the curriculum that aren't the basics, but we're not doing, you know, I think I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but I think anecdotally we are not top of the pops when it comes to global <coughs> outcomes uh, in literacy and numeracy. So it's good to see that that is up there in this particular poll. Yeah, I was surprised to see things like free speech is seen as such a threat in the Western countries. Mm. That's good. Anyway, have a look at that link in the, in the um, description below and you can do some comparative analyses of different countries. That is fascinating. The other thing uh, we need to talk about is Djokovic. Did you know that uh, Novik Djokovic last weekend won his fourth straight title at Wimbledon? What have we done to ourselves, Australia? He says he's got no plans to get vaccinated in order to bypass restrictions for the US Open, which is coming up. And he says, I'm not vaccinated, I'm not going to get vaccinated. Did we kick our own, an own goal here? We're the only country to deny this guy entry. Well, again, I think that comes down to, you know, just grandstanding, you know, and making an example of somebody. Um, yeah, I think it's a real shame. I actually think it's a real shame. Should have let him in, let him play? I would absolutely endorse that. The only thing I would say, in not necessarily agreeing with the mandates, but if the mandates applied to you and me coming in the country, should they should apply to everyone. Mm. 
Now, that's not agreeing with the mandates. That's just saying if, you know, if, if the country, if our country is going to deny entry of citizens, mm. they should probably be denying entry to everyone. Yeah, but now we're playing an evil game. We should not be denying entry to anyone. Correct. And that's the, that, was, that was my point in yeah. saying, but you can't, you, you know, r rules should apply to everyone, yeah. regardless of status. Except for bad rules. Yeah, well, it shouldn't, yes. Well, even bad rules should probably apply to everyone. They shouldn't be there is well, the answer. Yeah, but it's like the Cho, the um, health minister now not following the Cho's health directives. I'm happy that she's yeah, breaking the convention. But know? we know why it is. Yeah, we know why it is. I but mean, I'm, we can I'm be happy with that. We can be happy with, with decisions, but we should be cognizant of the motivation. Well, at the time, this was... Because, sorry to interrupt you, because those decisions we all know are not about us. No, They're about no, the no. election. When you get in, yeah, keep thinking of us, the little people. The, the whole, this is ridiculous because at the time they would have thought, well, maybe the world's going to move to a mandatory vaccinations long term. Maybe Wimbledon was talking about not letting men. So we wouldn't have looked so bad. You know, you know, but now we're the only people to stop the Joker from getting in because of vaccinations. I think that makes us look pretty backwater. I mean, New Zealand's talking about doing another lockdown, the government. I mean, that's, they're going to look really backwater if they do a lockdown right now. Hey, what about this? Um, Elon Musk. So Elon Musk wants to buy Twitter. Everyone said you can't do it. And in fact, the Twitter board resisted his purchase. And then he says, um, well, how many bots have you got? They said 5%. He says, prove it. They won't prove it. He says, deal's off. Now they're suing him, trying to force him to buy it, in which they'll have to reveal the bots. What do we think about uh, powerful individuals um, coming to the rescue? You know, we've been talking about speech and so on throughout today. And uh, this is an interesting thing. This is one individual. Like, this is very scary too. One dude. Yeah, and that's why I was just getting, you know, it harks back to what I said just a moment ago. Let's, what is his motivation? Ego, is it for the greater good? Or is it... It seems to be. He talks about free speech. Yeah, well, that's, I'd like to understand what the greater motivation is. And if that's the case, sure. I mean... But the tyrants we love versus the tyrants we don't love, you know? Like, yeah, I'm worried about this precedent. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't disagree with you. I think um, a lot of power in the hands of one person, you know, as long as they're on your side, it's good. As soon as they're not, it makes it all more problematic. This is why I don't agree with what's happened to PI Guy 17. I know you guys hate him. I'm in dear, I, I haven't got Maybe the I'm space to hate someone oh, on I'm Twitter. Think of Richard Reardon, sorry. Like I, I, I would post myself maybe once every couple of weeks. I use Twitter solely to see if there's any breaking news. I, I couldn't bear to think that I would get upset by someone's comments on Twitter. Yeah, okay. All right, fair enough. And look, I, I think, again, you know, it's it's great to see an alternative voice. You know, we've heard a lot from, you know, Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg over the last couple of years mm. and, um, you know, and, and love him or hate him. Um, Elon Musk, I think, has brought, you know, the how, how prolific bots are, Mm. Um, in influencing what does and doesn't get heard on Twitter, which is another major platform. And media points to Twitter. And Daniel Andrews and everyone, they rely on the feedback from Twitter. What if yeah. it's they do. So, so that's what I mean. So I, I think, you know, it, it, take the personality out. I think he's used how, you know, influential he is to, to raise, you know, a, a level of awareness ar around the, how prolific bots are in one of the, the major... Mm. referred to, validated, fact-checked <laughs> um, platforms. So, so yeah, but I, but I hear what you're saying. You know, there are a lot of those moguls, those big monopolies 
all across social media who are who are having a lot of say and a lot of influence on how governments run and um, the type of policies that they, you know, put forward. And we're talking about, you know, freedom of information and we're talking about, you know, them getting a lot of information about us. Um, you know, I think it's about time that Victorians had access to the same rights and had access yeah. to information that's being you know, touted as the decision behind a lot of the, the restrictions over the last couple of years. And, you know, as you so rightly said before, Ryan, you know, it's not a surprise that in spite of mm. the recommendation that, you know, we're, we're not now forced to, to adhere to those things because they said, because it's in their best interests. And cases and deaths have never been higher in this state than they are right now. We locked down six million people for six cases at one point. Yeah, we did. You're right. It's worth You know it. what makes sense? <laughs> well, you know, I'm a fan of Elon. I'm just worried about the yeah. concentration of power. But look, thank God one of the moguls is, is, is semi-decent. Okay, what do you think the bots will come out at? I reckon they say 5%. I honestly think Twitter is... is way overused in your circles, political mm. circles, but I actually think it's probably 35%, some ridiculous high amount, like 35% of it is fake. Mm, could be. Some people are saying 40% or 50%. Mm. Who knows? I mean, if it does go to court, then that information has to come out, so it'll be interesting. Do you, do you know what it feels like? That's a bubble. You've been on Twitter. It's like a mm. weird bubble. I feel like real life is becoming a little bit like that lately, especially in this state. It feels like we're living in a weird Twitter bubble in the media. And yeah, it is. I mean, I think, you know, you go back 20 years... Everyone got the Herald Sun and the Age, and yeah. it was everyone read the same thing and made their own views. Yeah. Now on social media, you're getting fed the views that you uh, have already shown the, you know, and then that it's you being like. legislated yeah. around what you so should I just, and shouldn't I, I be thinking. I do worry that we're not getting exposed to yeah. um, just a view. I mean, I you know, I, I make the comment to a to a. Uh, broadsheet newspapers journalists that when he said that he was an opinion writer, I would start respecting him more and don't tell me you're a journalist. <laughs> but there's a lot of colour and movement in the news now. Instead of just saying, this is what happened, it's tainted with opinion. And I, I, some people might argue that's always been the case. I, don't, I, I think it was flagged more in the past that it was an opinion. Um, that's true. There was leanings, yeah, sure. But I just think it's so much more prevalent now. In the, in the print media, but on social media, it's just we, we just We just opine for an hour and a half. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for coming and opining with me. But uh, we didn't claim to be a news panel either. No, no, I'm not a journalist. <laughs> a bunch of nobody. Well, I'm sorry. I'm a nobody. These are distinguished people, but we're just in a garage having a rational discussion. Hopefully you've enjoyed watching some discussion around the news of the week. Thank you for joining me. Ryan Smith, my favourite MP for Warrandyte. Not my favourite MP, really. I really, I really, sorry, I'm blowing so much smoke up your table. But I really think you're a good MP, and there's so Thank few. You. And you know what? There are good ones on the Labour side, too. I mean, you meet with them. Sure. There are. Yeah. There are good ones out there. Come and have an interview with uh, December. We'd love to come and uh, talk about how awesome you are in the Labour Party. That's a genuine, sure. genuine invitation. If you know any, hook me up. I'll do my best. Yeah. I'll see if I can get Dan on for you. No, I don't want Daniel because he'll bamboozle me. <laughs> can you imagine if I interviewed Dan? I'd walk out of the interview thinking he has some really good points. Maybe I've been wrong. I should close down Discernible. He's... And you would have bought a second-hand Datsun a long way. <laughs> uh, thank you, Ingrid Maynard. Good luck with the Victorians One campaign. Thank you very much. All right, see you next week. If you'd like to support us, go to discernible.locals.com. And uh, we'll leave you with a lovely quote. Uh, every week we end with a quote. I haven't prepared one, so I'll pull one. 
um, out of my head. I have a really cool book of quotes I'm gonna start selling to you all, uh, but it is this. Adventure may harm you, but monotony will kill you. Have an adventurous week. Thank you.